It has been a very long time, almost a year, actually, since we've had an episode on the I Am podcast. But today is actually a very special day. I have a very, very special episode coming to you. And you're going to find out why I've been a little distant on here, a little quiet, I guess you could say, but I have not, not been busy. You already know I'm doing something always, all of the time. So here we go. I, Cola Shippentower Thompson, am currently running for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation Board of Trustees Vice Chair position. That's all you need to know. Just kidding. You know there's more to it. So today I actually went live on my Facebook to answer some questions from our tribal members that they have in regards to this campaign season with the C2IR. I'm really excited. I got to go in depth with some of the nitty gritty topics that some of our tribal members are wondering about. They want to have answers and solutions to some of these pressing matters. And it's important to me and I know it's important to you. So I also want to provide another platform for people to listen to the live if they weren't able to participate during that time. So you can also take this at your leisure and listen to it wherever you need to. But I really do hope it answers some of your questions that you may have had and maybe give you a little bit more insight as to who I am as a tribal member. I know that a lot of you already know me, but I think this kind of helps help some of you to make your decision. So really excited. Do not forget November 14th is election day for the C2IR, BOT, and General Council. So make sure to utilize that vote. Go place your bets. Just kidding. It doesn't work like that, but you already know. It's up to you. And I really just hope to be of service to my people. And let's get into it. And when things are really tough and they're really rough and nothing's working, but there's something inside of you that says, I just have to follow that because you don't know who you're going to be. This is Cola Shippen Tower. Some people know me for my professional fight career in MMA or even my journey with jujitsu and pro grappling. Others know me for my advocacy for everything indigenous. And some know me for my unique ability of pissing people off while cultivating change at the same time. My goal is not to make everyone mad though. I want to spark your imagination through your heart and mind while encouraging, challenging, and even empowering you to think differently with compassion and love. I don't need a shit ton of followers or fans, only you, the listener, who's willing to challenge societal norms and standards to create a better world for all of us to thrive in. Let's go. I am very excited and really, really just feeling this overwhelmingly big amount of blessings and all of the love and support that's been coming in the past few months for not only myself, but also my family during this time. It's, it's amazing. The just, it's really hard to describe in words because there are often times as indigenous people, when we're moving around in our journey, we feel alone and we feel like maybe sometimes it's just always going to be like that. But when you really push yourself to take these health, healthy risks, you start to find out very quickly that you do have a huge support system behind you. And that just makes me feel really, really blessed to be able to see that. Hi, Maurice. It's really good to see you on here. And you guys, if you have any questions at all, please go ahead and drop them in the chat box. I'll be reading them from there. But again, I did receive a few questions beforehand. So I'm going to go ahead and hop into those right now. And 
you guys, I had some community members come. They came with some really interesting and some really deep questions. And I really hope that I can provide as much information as I can and just answer them to the best of my ability. That's what I'm here for, uh, to kind of give you more of a feel of who I am as a person, who I am as an indigenous mother, wife, uh, community community member, advocate, all the different uh, hats that I might be wearing right now. But man, these questions, we'll do our best to kind of get into them. And if you happen to hear any sort of noises in the background, I am at home. So we do have children. We got our three boys, Abraham, Simon, and Samuel. We also have a few dogs. So they kind of do uh, run around, but obviously uh, Tommy is also home. So he's going to try to minimize the, the sound that might come in. <clears throat> All right. So one of the first questions that I got was, can you describe your work with MMIW a little more in depth? in regards to the safety training. This is a really awesome question because I do believe that this is a huge part of my platform for coming into this kind of work, advocating for indigenous people in, a, in one of the most serious crises that has swept across Indian country, okay? So I'm gonna back up a little bit and provide a little bit of history as far as why I even get into this line of work. Uh, when I became a professional athlete, I really didn't know at the time what I was going to do with it. And those that don't know, I'm a professional athlete in the sense of mixed martial arts. I really didn't want to take on this journey in such a selfish way of just training so hard and going into a cage and fighting whoever I could for the sake of just fighting. I wanted to, just like you guys, is create purpose and intention with that career path that had kind of chosen me. I didn't really set out. I had actually... Uh, was a little rebellious against my Toto. His name was Wapunanet, Leland Shippentower. A lot of you in the community know him, but he strongly urged me not to compete in mixed martial arts. And I kind of went, you know, a little bit behind his back and did so. Um, but I had a lot of fun with it, but I knew that there was going to be something more with it. And what was really rare at the time was to see indigenous athletes in that world. Almost every single event that I would go to, there was no other females. Almost every single event I went to, there were no other indigenous people. I know that there were some other athletes, but we were all so far apart. You had a lot from Oklahoma, South Dakota, even Texas. I can think of a few off the top of my head, but we were all kind of really just spread out. And I wanted to utilize that platform for something bigger. At that time, our family was being hit very hard by this crisis. I'm sorry, there's a fly in my office, but we were hit by this crisis very directly. I had a cousin and an aunt who were in a car wreck that had some sus suspicious uh, details around it. I had a cousin who was actually pulled from the river. So we were dealing with this head on. And this was before social media really started to pick it up. But I started really connecting with the community and trying to figure out different areas of uh, where we could help and where we could try to grow. And this is something that was really instilled within me from an early age from my Toto, which was you can't sit here and cry around a lot of, about a lot of things. You can't really sit here and complain without being ready to put in the work, to find a solution, to provide help, to do something. So I decided that this platform that I had found, I was going to start talking about an issue that was very serious. We fast forward a little bit through time and actually found that uh, what was missing within this community, because we were talking about the numbers, we were talking about the statistics, and what we were really finding is that there was no actual solutions happening. But within Indian country, we've always found that we cannot rely on law enforcement, we cannot rely on the government, whether it be at a state or federal level. So a lot of the, the resolutions that were coming 
to the surface are being done by grassroots effort organizations, aka family members of people that have gone missing or have been murdered. So that's what actually really built up this want to provide something more. So in 2020, I did uh, start my own business. It's the Wasauzo Project. It's an LLC. And what we have done is created and developed a safety plan that caters to any individual that takes a training. And when they take this training, it's not only empowering them to advocate for their own personal safety, it's also showing law enforcement that we, Indian people, are taking our lives seriously, our safety seriously. And so when a loved one goes missing and the family members want to report them missing, they're able to take this PDF that's been created and provide it to law enforcement and essentially call them out on all of the BS that they've always provided us, which is you need to wait 48 hours, which that's not true. Uh, they're probably out partying or drinking. That doesn't matter. Their life is still important. Uh, they're probably partying. You probably just need to wait a little bit longer. So a lot of the frustrating things that we were being met with, this safety training immediately stops that and tells them that's not within our safety plan. We've done a good majority of your job. Now you need to do yours. I've had this really beautiful opportunity to be able to take the Wasauta Project and travel and meet and provide this training virtually, which we all learned during COVID is that a lot of things we can do from our homes. We could do it from our offices. We don't have to travel all the way across the country to get this stuff done. And it's been really beautiful. I, I will say that I am very proud of the fact that we were able to bring this training to the National Criminal Justice Training Center. Uh, I was a little nervous for one of the trainings that I did hold. One week, we were able to work with victims, advocates, and allies. The next week, we were working specifically with child welfare workers, social workers. And then the following week, we were working specifically with judicial personnel and law enforcement. That one was the one that I was most nervous about because I'm bringing this training to people and essentially calling them out on their shortcomings and where their faults have been. And I was really surprised to be met with such a kind response. I had several other chief of police and several other officers reach out to me and saying, this is exactly what we need. This is exactly what we are asking the family members, the community for, and you're providing all within this little PDF. And that means a lot. And although I had expressed to them, that's beautiful. That's amazing. I'm glad that we can provide that for you. But why has it come to this point that someone from the indigenous community had to come up with something like this for you to take it seriously? And it was really nice to be able to bridge this gap of communication with law enforcement and these officers because then it, it told me exactly what it was where the issue was happening because they were telling me it is sad that it comes to that point, but unfortunately you do have some bad apples within this within this field. And that's what we're running into time and time again is law enforcement that very blatantly do not care about the indigenous community. It's just more numbers. So that's a little bit more of the work that I do. And you know, I will I will very boldly say that regardless of the results that happen on Tuesday, this work that I have and the just the trainings that I've been able to go to and the connections I've been able to cultivate and the people who have been wanting to work with indigenous communities more and more, that won't stop. I know that this crisis of MMIWR is nowhere near the end, unfortunately, and it's something that family members and advocates we're going to have to continue fighting for and continue working towards. And that's something that I know for a fact is never going to stop. And I know that personally for me is I won't, I won't stop. That's the fighter in me. And that's something that I'll continue on. 
just going to go through some of these comments that have come in. Hi there, Sunny. I'm so happy to see you on here. I know you're coming through your mom's Facebook. All right, before I get into some of the questions that I had beforehand, it looks like there are some in the chat box, so I'll make sure to cover those. Norma is asking, what can you offer the CTUIR off-res members? I guess I would need to know a little bit more specific. Uh, let me see, you did, I lost a sister to domestic violence. How can you offer support to CTUIR off-res members in Portland? The NIA program has limited DV services. In truth, I've experienced lateral oppression living off-res tribal housing. I've made police, security, and property incident reports of family violence and received little or support, no response. The police can blacklist our complex for too many reports. That is really frustrating. And you know, the interesting thing is that as I create and develop the Wasawata Project, I almost had no participation from our own local tribal police department. Uh, the only sort of, I don't know, I guess advice that I had received would have been from my husband, Tommy Thompson. And of course, that's kind of a given. He's going to support me and help me in any sort of way that he can. And we actually did have one officer who was a community officer at the time, and he was able to help provide some input and tell me which areas uh, were going to need to be you know, talked about, included in the safety training. But I think I've probably had more conversations with law enforcement off reservation. Sounds really weird, but that's probably where I've received more feedback and more positive support in the Wisalta project and the safety training than I have actually on res. And unfortunately, I can speak to the fact that I have re received maybe some negative interactions from off reservation law enforcement just due to the fact that I'm Native. I know and I completely understand that as Indigenous people, we have to be careful about how we move in this world uh, just because we can offend somebody else's sensibilities. And unfortunately, that comes a lot with law enforcement. They look at us one way and they automatically make a very quick judgment call on who we are as a people. And it's really unfortunate. As far as being able to provide support uh, in regard to the CTYR, I do believe that we have a very good department through the Van Family Violence and Services Program with Desiree Coyote. And she actually, I could speak from personal experience because I was able to utilize her program several years ago when I was going through my, uh, my experiences with domestic violence. She has this very genuine, beautiful approach. Unfortunately, there is a lack of involvement from other departments within the CTYR who do not want to utilize those services. I'm not entirely sure of the ins and outs of that. That's something I would like to address and bring my concerns to. I want more accountability from our law enforcement and ask why those services aren't being utilized and why we're being forced as tribal members to utilize a federal advocate who has a, a little bit of a checkered past as well. She may have started within her position with good intentions, but she has obviously fallen into what I would classify and many others would classify as the good old boys club. I think we're all very familiar with that. And I do believe that our law enforcement needs to be called out more in accountability for the sense that we're continuing to hire predators. I do believe that's why 
a lot of the issues that we're running into right now as a people within some of our uh, departments is because they're supporting and enabling predators to continue doing the work that they've been doing. So when we have this lack of communication and the lack of want to assist each department, it makes it really hard. I do believe that Desiree Coyote does receive a lot of personal references to her program because those of us that have been able to utilize it understand what type of services and support she's able to provide, which is a lot. So if there's any sort of uh, piece of advice that I could give someone that's living off the reservation who needs services and support, if they're going through currently a crisis situation, Desiree Coyote within the Family Violence and Services Program is an excellent asset to have. So that's the one piece of advice that I could give any tribal members that are going through that right now. Thank you so much for asking that, Norma. That is a really very deep and intense topic. All right, so I am going to dive into another one of the questions that I did receive beforehand. Uh, a tribal member had sent this to me ahead of time. And... This kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about. She was asking, what will you do to help in, the wording is a little weird, what will you do to help in the, in suicide prevention or addiction prevention? I mean, that is a very big question. You know, my understanding as far as how the board of trustees and what the officers and members of the board of trustees, what we are able to do is make the decisions on a policy and code level to where it can kind of trickle down into the other departments that are supposed to be supporting these different areas. Uh, so the best way that I can answer this question is probably in alignment with the work that I've been doing over the past several years. What will you do to help suicide prevention or addiction prevention? <sighs> this is a big one. I do believe that as Indigenous people and community members, we all have our own personal journey and experience with addiction, whether it be personally or whether it be a family member that we're trying to navigate what resources are available. And I myself grew up in a clean and sober household, which I feel is a huge blessing and somewhat rare uh, today, and especially for my generation when I was growing up. But one thing that we had to navigate and deal with was that my parents were adopting children and my siblings were heavy, heavy into addiction and unfortunately still are. And this provides a very different perspective for me as someone who does live a very clean and healthy lifestyle because it breaks my heart to see my own siblings going through something. So I do believe that the pre preventative work is going to be in the wraparound services, not only for the people that are going through the addiction, but also for the family members. I think we see it time and time again that it's almost a ripple effect. And that's almost everything in life is that when somebody is going through addiction issues, it kind of filters out and the other family members and community members see it. And it starts to become a little bit more normal. It starts to become, to become something that is every day and in your face. And so it starts to build this almost rapport within the community and for essentially our youth to be a little bit more experimental within it. So I do believe highlighting a lot of our culture, which uh, of course, if we are speaking ancestrally or historically, is that alcohol, sugar, those things were not provided to indigenous people without 
an ill intention in mind. I do believe that when colonialism happened, these people understood that our bodies do not process alcohol and sugar the same way as non-Indigenous people do. So that's why our, you know, addiction rates are so much higher because biologically our bodies cannot handle that. But that's kind of going into a little bit of a tangent in a different direction. But I, my hopes in being able to provide some sort of prevention around this is being able to give the space and the time to people who need to be heard. I think that when I had first actually started my podcast, I was trying to open up spaces for people who hadn't been able to utilize their voice and to express their concerns as to why they were so lost in this addiction. And I do believe that a lot of our community members right now are going to be our best assets within suicide and addiction prevention. I could think of two people, you know, Maurice was on here. That's an amazing story right there. She was actually on my podcast. I have my cousin Dion Denny, who was on my podcast as well. And what we had talked about was amazing because they provided a firsthand experience of what it was like in their mind and in their body during that time. If we provide more space to those people who have a very direct experience to those and being able to reach out to other community members, to family members, that's where a lot of the preventative work is going to happen. Uh, we don't know what we're battling. If we're asking people who have you know, these special degrees and certificates, because they may not have actually personally experienced it, but they're very book smart about it. They might have, you know, the science behind the resolutions to how to battle that. But if we don't talk to the actual community members, our family members, about what they were going through, I don't think we're going to find any sort of solutions. And what's that going to take from our leadership? It's going to take boots to the ground efforts. It's going to take being amongst the community. It's going to take the time to spend with the community, having these conversations and almost like uncomfortable conversations. Nobody wants to talk about what they felt in their addiction. There's almost this area of like, if we're seen associating with people who might be going through addiction, it's almost like we're we're guilty by association, which is very unfortunate because that might be the conversation that saved someone's life. That might be the time that that person needed in order to make this huge monumental decision in their life to get clean. And the other thing that we're talking about is suicide prevention. A majority of the time, people who are almost seen as well put together, like they have it together, like everything is just perfect and everything is just butterflies and roses. A majority of the time, that's people who are struggling the most internally. And it's going to come down just to being good human beings to one another. But from a leadership standpoint, I do see the happiness and well-being of my community as part of my responsibility. I do my best to embody that every single day that I want to live a healthy and clean lifestyle, that I want to provide a good example and role model to my boys directly within their own home, but also to show the community, you can talk to me about your issues. You can come to me and let me know without judgment, without a preconceived notion of negativity to you, because I genuinely want to see where you're at and meet you there and figure out what we can do to better that position. So that's a very long answer to your question, because I do believe that this topic is huge and it's going to be the wraparound services provided by the resources that we do have available through DCFS, the Family Violence Services Program, and also Yellowhawk to partner with that. You know, we actually just had a community forum that was hosted by Cami Lewis, which was amazing. and It was beautiful. We had some really awesome food, too. So thank you so much for that, Cami. But uh, there were some 
people there that had expressed how they didn't like the feeling of walking into Yellowhawk and feeling almost the shame and embarrassment because most people see exactly which department or area they're going to within the clinic and people already know where they're going and why. And this is important to be able to provide services to these people. And when I was going through that, I wanted a space to be able to be seen, but not too seen. It's a very, a very different balance that we have to try to have there. And I do believe having maybe a different area uh, where people who are going through it can enter in to feel safe and less vulnerable in those spaces can be really important as well. Uh, again, I think that might go into building security and issues like that, but I definitely think that's something that's possible. Anything is possible if it means supporting our tribal members and our community members and ensuring their safety and ensuring their health. I think that's important. I'm just going to take one more look here into the chat box, see if there was anything else. Norma is asking another question. Does the C2IR fund NARA outpatient or residential program in Portland? Naya and NARA oversees housing in the Portland area. There is a tribal preference. Can the C2IR be involved in placing our tribal members in the housing opportunity, into this housing opportunity? Ah, okay. So, <clears throat> If I'm interpreting this right, the question is basically like, how can we support our tribal members or community members who are struggling with addiction or alcohol abuse? And how can we get the funding to be able to provide them that support, support, I'm sorry, provide them that support in the NARA or the NIA program? I love the work that's being done off reservation. I have heard many good things about the programs that are being provided off reservation. Um, most specifically, my cousin Dion was at Medicine Wheel and that area had provided so much to him. And now he's like absolutely thriving in his life. So I do believe that these programs do benefit the people who are able to utilize them. As far as funding and services and providing him the transportation, the food, the lodging to be able to get into programs like that, I think it is lacking just a little bit. But this is this is my personal thought on this area of addiction is that as an indigenous people, we are so strongly connected to the land. Wherever we go, we're, we're not houseless, we're not homeless because we are always home. This is our land, so we are always home. But I do believe that the areas in which we do call home just like me and you were Umatilla. So the Confederate Tribes of Umatilla Indian Reservation, this is our home. This is where we have the most deeply rooted connection is this land. So when we remove ourselves from this land, our, our body starts to feel almost out of sync. Our minds start to go one way or the other. I think the perfect example is if you have ever flown anywhere, and you land and you start to go about your business traveling, you start to feel almost like this, this feeling of loneliness. You start feeling sick. You start having headaches. You start having uh, other issues, just feeling really dehydrated. It's because our bodies are trying to keep up the connection with the land that is kind of foreign to us. Yes, we're connected, but it's not quite the same as when we're home. So I truly believe that um, our community members, our tribal members who are having these issues with addiction are already facing a huge problem. Um, their spirits are almost like disconnecting from their body and they're trying to find something to fill that void, essentially. And when we remove our bodies, our physical bodies now, 
from our land that we're so strongly connected to, it makes that struggle so much bigger. This is how I feel about this topic when it comes to addiction and alcoholism. So with that being said, I very much want to see something established locally for our people. I want to see housing for people who are trying to navigate uh, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, and trying to find other avenues. Because I truly believe that the services that are being provided through NARA and places like Medicine Wheel, they're providing these cultural practices, these traditional teachings um, from individuals who have a lot of knowledge and they want to provide this to people. But I truly believe that this is where we start taking the connection from people who have been in those experiences, people like uh, Maurice and Dion and Elliot and myself and many others that when we're grasping onto our cultural teachings, we want to be able to have the space to teach those to others. And we do have a special place in our heart for others that are going through the same battle that we've been through. And we want to provide that and we want to help in that sense. So big picture, I'm really hoping that at some point we can have our own treatment facility, whether it be inpatient or outpatient, that is solely dedicated to providing cultural teachings and cultural preservation to people who have been going through addiction issues. I do think that being able to have a space that's just dedicated to that one thing will also be able to provide wraparound services for the family also, and keeping that close connection to the community so that they don't feel displaced from this issue that they're running into. That's something I really am passionate about and would love to have come back to the community. I know a lot of other people who have been navigating this area of their life want that for our for our tribe and our people as well. Um, to kind of piggyback off of that, the other thing I was thinking is that why don't we have housing for people who have just been released from prison? Okay. Uh, I myself and our family have had family members who have been locked away for a very long time. We're talking like 10 years at a time. And when they're brought back home, they don't know what to do. They don't have the resources to find uh, employment. They don't have the resources to find housing. Of course, being a tribal member does offer some advantages, but there's a lot of different, you know, loopholes and different leaps and bounds that they have to make in order to, you know, provide a living for themselves. And it's very difficult. So I, I would also really love to see like a halfway house, the the start of something like that being brought in. Uh, the other thing is, what are we doing about our own personal homeless community? Homeless. I mean, I know that we can all think of a, a few individuals within our community that we really love to be able to help and find housing for them or some options. Uh, we have a lot of different areas within our, within our reservation that we can start building or implementing these sort of programs to be able to provide support to the community. And, you know, this is a very big topic. And I, I truly believe that a lot of uh, the other candidates that are running for the Board of Trustees also have the same uh, solutions in mind. But I do think that it's going to take a lot of the, the just the boots to the ground type of work. It's going to take a lot of the really uncomfortable conversations on where the funding is going to come from. It's going to take a lot of the, you know, probably deep and controversial conversations that nobody wants to have. But when you have a leadership that is so ingrained in the community and is walking amongst these issues every single day and wanting to, you know, battle these and figure out what we can do to provide better resources to our community. That's where we're going to be able to find a, a commonality amongst all of the tribal leadership and come to a concrete answer to provide to our tribal members. That's something that I'm hoping to be able to provide is a voice within that. Somebody that has been through the trenches, so to speak, somebody who's been in this type of work for such a long time on 
both sides of the fence, I guess you could say, and being able to provide uh, ideas. And I know that there's a lot of other uh, candidates who feel the same way. So thank you so much, Norma. These, is, these are excellent questions. When I recently visited home and returned to Portland, my heart felt loneliness. Absolutely. And, you know, I have a lot of family that's in the Portland area and the Seattle area. And I think that's the common theme almost is that you come home and it feels amazing, but you know that you have work to do uh, back at where you're currently living, which is off reservation. And it does get a little difficult. So I, I truly hope that from a leadership perspective, I can still provide the same type of connection and relationship that I've been able to maintain with a lot of people who do, do live off reservation. Um, I mean, my phone is always on, my door is always open, and I, I do uh, feel that I've always been able to provide a space to have the conversations and at least be of some support. And you know, again, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, that'll still be there no matter what. All right, so I'll take on another one of these questions that I received before the live started. <clears throat> Excuse me, got a little, <clears throat> it's been a rough weekend and I'm feeling, feeling my health is kind of uh, taking a, taking a hit from that. So let me see here. What would you recommend? This is a big one. What would you recommend for the men that are being emotionally, mentally, and or physically abused by their female partners? <clears throat> what would you recommend for the men that are being emotionally, mentally, and or physically abused by their female partners? You know, what's really difficult about this topic of domestic violence is that a lot of people like to categorize it. Domestic violence is domestic violence doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, domestic violence is domestic violence. I think that's something that we definitely, <clears throat> in this space of advocacy and being allies that we definitely need to stay away from. I think because statistically it usually is men abusing females, women, <laughs> I'm reading the words, but men abusing women is the kind of norm. That's the common issue that we're running into. It is pretty rare to see women abusing men. But I'll speak to this in terms that I feel like I'm comfortable talking about because this is something that I've personally experienced. And I, I do believe that a lot of the community members understand and why my uh, journey with MMA had even started. <clears throat> Sorry, let me, I had water somewhere. <clears throat> what I don't, there we go. This is Personally speaking, it is really hard to acknowledge and take ownership of your own faults and shortcomings, especially when it comes to relationships within our own life, whether it be our partner, significant other, our parents, or even our children. It's really hard to recognize those, those faults and shortcomings. But something that I had learned about myself when I was going through my experience with domestic violence was that a toxic, toxic environment is never going to bring out the best in you. An unhealthy environment is never going to bring out the healthy parts of you. 
And unfortunately, the relationship that I was in and the environment that I was in was so toxic that it started to bring out parts of me that I had never seen before. And it becomes very difficult to recognize that when you're in survival mode or that fight or flight mode and trying to figure out how to navigate being abused. And it is a very vicious cycle. And it's a cycle in which is difficult from all different areas. Uh, usually violence begats violence. When you're being physically harmed, your reaction naturally as a human being is to respond physically. The other area that we run into is that we have this trauma bond usually with our abuser and vice versa. That's why we see a lot of these relationships where someone's being abused, it gets reported, law enforcement gets involved, somebody goes to jail, but we immediately turn around and want the abuser to come back. It's a vicious cycle. And it's something that we're still, you know, there's still a lot of research going into the, the issues of domestic violence on all these different levels of emotions and the mental aspect of it and also the physical part of it. So having a really deep-rooted understanding of domestic violence and having navigated all the different areas of it and the resources and coming out essentially on the other side of it. And unfortunately, when you come out on the other side of it, there's really no end to it. There's still, you know, navigating PTSD. There's still navigating anxiety. There's still navigating maybe co-parenting. There's still all these other areas that we have to work through. But regardless if it's men or women, what I would recommend is you have to immediately remove yourself from that situation. And I know it's a lot easier said than done, but what I think it's going to take is you have to ensure that you yourself are creating a healthy environment, meaning you're staying away from drugs, you're staying away from alcohol, you're finding something to maintain a healthier lifestyle. It's essentially the work that we have to do on ourselves. And so you have to be able to remove yourself from those situations. And I truly do believe that when we categorize it, whether it be men on women, women on men, or, you know, two-spirit relationships, when you're being abused or going through that, you have to remove yourself from that. It's a very deep and intricate topic. I think that we're still trying to find the best measures to go through, but I will say that I am not some sort of big feminist that is going to say, you know, men are the problem. They're always going to be the issue. Absolutely not. I've definitely met quite a few men who have been abused as well, and we're trying to figure out what to do. And I've had friends who have reached out to me saying, like, I don't know what else to do because nobody believes me. Nobody ever understands that a man can be abused as well. Uh, but, you know, it's providing the space for those really uncomfortable conversations, but also the realistic support that you have to provide to these people and saying, are you also providing a very healthy environment for this relationship to thrive? We start getting into like kind of relationship issues from this area, but um, I I'll kind of leave this off with this one thought is that if you cannot recognize and work through your own red flags, you're not going to be able to see the green, the green flags in other people. And I think that was something that helped me survive my situation. I do believe that it's something that's helped um, my friends. Like I had mentioned earlier, is that men who are being physically and you know emotionally, mentally abused is that they had to realize their short shortcomings as well to understand that maybe that the environment that they were in was not the best for them. <clears throat> 
man, that was a really big like question. And I, I, from tribal, a tribal leadership perspective, I think it's just that I am able to provide, um, the standpoint or the viewpoint of having to personally navigate the area of domestic violence myself and understanding which resources are available to victims and survivors and how to feel comfortably doing so and being, being able to provide this, uh, almost a helping bridge that gap between those resources and helping people feel comfortable in doing so. I think that's the biggest issue that we have is uh, nobody wants to voice when they need help. It, it is really hard to do that. But when you're um, met with representation that wants to be there for you and does take your safety and your health and wellness seriously, it makes it a little easier to come to leadership and voice those concerns and really feel like you're being valued and heard on these really tough topics. I think that's what's really important. Just checking here. You look at the time as well. We got about, I don't want to take up too much time from everyone, maybe about 15 more minutes. So if you have any other questions, please let me know. Drop them in the chat box and let me know. <clears throat> I don't have the best vision, so I have to kind of squint and look at here. Again, also, uh, this is a good point somebody just brought up. If you don't feel comfortable dropping the questions into the chat box, you can shoot me a message. I'm watching my my messenger as well. And that's what I'm reading right now. Just give me one minute here to read through this. Oh, okay. Um, I don't want to read too much into it because I don't know how comfortable they feel in me reading all this because it is a, a really personal experience and I do want to respond to this later to the person that's messaging me, but this is really important and I'm going to touch on this a little bit. And I'm, I'm reading your message right now. So if you respond to the what I'm about to say here about what's going on in your, okay. <clears throat> this is big, this is huge. And this is actually something that I've been navigating with my own family the past, we're coming up on December, almost two years. So when we're talking about domestic violence, we're talking about addiction issues, and we're talking about the services that we do have, whether it be through the Family Violence Services Program, DCFS, UTPD, and healthcare at Yellowhawk. What is really important right now is that when we go into these spaces, it means so much to us that we are able to see people who look like us, that move like us, that sound like us, who know exactly where we're coming from. So there's a couple of different areas I wanna to touch on with this topic. When it comes to our elders within our community, 
it gets really hard because there's a lot of cultural barriers and there's a lot of other survival tactics that are in place with our elders when it comes to healthcare. And this is something that I've been navigating with my, my Tota is when they go in these spaces, I've had to really advocate for him because a majority of the time, the, some of the nurses and a majority of the doctors that are coming into Yellowhawk and working for us are non-native and they don't understand uh, that we have residential school survivors, that we have people who have been facing um, generational trauma for a very long time. So a majority of their coping mechanisms, a majority of their social cues are just a little different. And unless you're with them every single day and navigating it 24 seven with them, you won't understand what those cues are. I know. And I understand that with my dad is that he can't hear, you know, like he's done a lot of things in his life, so he can't hear. So I've had to tell every single doctor and nurse, like you have to yell at him. No, 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 no. We don't want to yell at him. We don't want to, we don't want to be rude. No, you're being rude by not communicating thoroughly with this person. So you have to yell at him. Otherwise he's just going to agree to whatever you're saying. The other thing is that some healthcare professionals don't understand that our elders don't want to take pills on top of pills on top of pills. So advocating this to them as well is saying, no, we don't want a band-aid. We want a sure fix. So what do we do? And it's been really interesting navigating this with my dad and being there at every single doctor's appointment. I know there's a lot of elders out here that don't have that, but if we had like, a, I know that there's CHR, there's all these other um, positions. And you know, there's a lot of people within Yellowhawk that are tribal members, but if we had a specific uh, position dedicated to advocating for particular uh, tribal members. So we have people who are there to help these elders navigate the healthcare system. How amazing would that be? Somebody that is actually in the community and deeply rooted and understanding each one of these elders and where they come from and being able to help advocate between the that person and healthcare professionals, that'd be amazing. Um, I cannot imagine our elders that have to do that on their own because I've been there with my dad for every step of the process that he's been sick the past couple of years. So that's something that I feel is really important is having someone there that looks just like them, who is also indigenous and also from this local community. I do think that uh, it is going very well that we're hiring um, indigenous people from other native communities because they do have somewhat of an understanding. Um, and I have met quite a few people, um, the physical therapy department, they very much want to integrate themselves into the community. So they're showing up at the community events, um, powwows, fun runs, uh, different, you know, events that are being held by or hosted by Yellowhawk. I think that's amazing. And that really makes me happy to see because we all want to have familiar faces within these areas that we're trying to get support from. I think it truly is, again, this person was touching on UTPD. You need to have more representation there. I'm not entirely sure where the numbers are at now, but I do believe that we only have, off the top of my head, I can only think of four excuse me, tribal members that work for our tribal police department. I might be wrong. I don't know if Tommy's watching, if he wants to correct me, but I really can only think off the top of my head for, and that's me with the knowledge of who we have hired within that department. Excuse me. Mind you, we do have one that doesn't look native at all. I don't think that he was born and raised on the reservation, um, but he is a tribal member here, but he doesn't look like one, but he, he works within UTPD, which is very interesting to me. Um, but that's something else. We need more representation of our own people. So what are we doing hiring people that don't look like us? 
that don't sound like this, who essentially don't care about our community, who don't want to know anything about our community. I think I heard a, a quote from someone within a particular department saying, like, I'm an anthropologist, so I understand indigenous issues or the indigenous culture. So it's essentially a, a white man saying that he took a class in college so he understands who we are as a people. That does not bode well with me because that's not accurate at all. You can study cultures for however long you feel like you want to study them, but you won't ever actually know our issues or what it's like to walk in this life as an indigenous person unless you actually are native. And so that was something that was really interesting. But again, I think in a nutshell, what I'm getting from this message I received um, in my messenger was that having our own tribal people being hired back when they come back home. And so this goes hand in hand with really advocating to our youth and being right there and showing them the resources that are available to them through higher education and through um, the different departments to be able to go and get maybe some training or get their higher education to get these credentials to be able to come back and work for their people. It is super important in preserving our culture if our youth take up that responsibility as well. This is part of my my job when I'm being able to go and speak. This is my favorite part because I get to work with tribal youth and it is so awesome to be able to hear what it is that they want to do with their life, what it is that they're hoping for their own people. And also being able to empower them with the mindset that the survival of our people, the preservation of our culture, and maintaining our sovereignty as a people is going to be their responsibility as well. So I really love that Julie Taylor and DCFS has provided this space for our tribal youth with the youth council, because personally, my son, Abraham, is a member at large on the junior youth council. And I've seen, much, seen so much growth in him in just this past year from being in a space like that, because he's learning to speak. He's learning that wherever he goes, he's representing his people. He's understanding that uh, speaking words and showing up is how people are going to understand who we are as a people. And it's going to maintain this higher level of cultivating change. I mean, how beautiful is that, that we get to work directly with our youth every single day if we take that responsibility upon ourselves, and especially within tribal leadership, when you're coming out into the community and you're saying, hey, I'm right here with you, but what do you want to do? What do you see? What are your strengths? What are your goals for yourself? And ultimately, what are your goals for your people? How can I help you obtain that, maintain it, harness it, and move forward with it? Because when I'm gone, it's going to be you. And then it's going to be your children, and then your grandchildren, and so on and so forth. But I think that's a beautiful thing that we get to advocate with our children is, you know, providing them the space to talk about those things and letting them know when you get older, you want to see people who look like you in these spaces. Let's keep that going. Because again, what we're talking about is representation of people that look like us, sound like us, and are indigenous and understand our issues and uh, our triumphs, our challenges, our obstacles, our wins, understanding all of that to be able to ultimately serve uh, our tribal community. <clears throat> I hope I was able to address that in a way that <laughs> was understanding. So let's see here. 
Are there C2IR training programs that could train CNAs, medication aids, physical therapy aids? I do not actually know if there is a very, like a specific program to that other than higher education. I do think it would be really cool to provide these sort of opportunities just to kind of understand what different areas are. Because I think when we're talking about CNAs and physical therapy, our kids don't necessarily understand what those areas are unless they're actually in them. So how awesome would it be with our tribal youth um, employment program if we did almost like those mentorships or internships? I, I know that there's internships available, but what if we provided that to even the younger youth uh, when they're in that program? To be able to say, hey, you can do some shadow work with some of these people and see what it is that they're providing. And maybe that might be your area. And not just like healthcare professions. Uh, what about like engineering? What about, um, you know, law enforcement? We, I don't think that we have an official uh, little deputy program, but I do think that ride alarms are available. But I mean, that's really difficult when you don't necessarily trust the law enforcement that's in place. But um what about even with uh, courts? Like, what if some of the kids are interested in that? And what if people are interested in the planning office, understanding um, also fisheries or all these different areas? I think that there's a huge opportunity there if we're able to provide spaces like that for our kids to know what type of careers are available out there. Let's see here. Um, Kelly, you're so awesome. I Kelly's not a if this is the Kelly that I'm thinking of. Um, but <laughs> how are you able to manage your time with all that you do? How are you able to give so much to so many all, all at the same time? Yep. So this is a, a teammate of mine. She's not a tribal member, but you know, the, I do think that's a, a good question because I do get that from local people as well from my community here, other tribal members. Um, how do you manage your time? You know, I think it's really important that when you find your bigger why in life, it makes it so much easier to prioritize and figure out uh, what you want to do with your day. And I strive for every single day to live my life with intention and purpose, because I have three human beings who are reliant on me, who are looking to me, but it's really important to me that I show them a level of independence that they're able to pick it up as, as well and cultivate it for themselves as well. But when they are able to navigate their own journey and find their bigger why, it makes it so much easier. So Something else I found really interesting, and Kelly, you might even love this book as well, is The Seven Circles of Wellness by Thosh and Chelsea Collins. It is an amazing book because it talks about all the different areas of our life as Indigenous people and how to maintain a quote-unquote balance uh, to all those areas, whether it be physical health, food, ceremony, sacred space, uh, land, just all these different things like within our life and how they interconnect with one another and how they push and pull. So maybe my physical health is optimal, like I'm doing amazing, but ceremony, I'm kind of like, I need a little bit more work in. So then it, it shows me visually like, okay, I need to do a little bit more there. But when I do ceremony, when I'm going to the longhouse and I'm dancing, that's the physical aspect as well. So feeding these different seven areas of our life is really important. So that's how I've been able to manage my time and being able to maintain this level of living uh, because I do want to be purposeful and intentional and be able to provide that as uh, a living example to my people and show them we can do this. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Let's see here. <clears throat> what motivated you to challenge yourself and run for BOT? Do you have doubts running against 
the opposite sex? And how will you develop relationships with stakeholders, partnering agencies to advocate for community and policies and law? Oh, Maurice. All right. <clears throat> Let's dive into this. So what motivated you to challenge yourself and run for BOT? Honestly, it's a lot of uh, conversation with my my dad and not specifically to the BOT and running for this position. I had said it earlier that I have grown up <clears throat> with a very strong force in my life, too, if we're going to be fair. My mom is <clears throat> is very strong as well. But when you have someone who is so pivotal in your connection to everything, you take everything he says and you want to embody that. And the biggest thing he had told me growing up, even as a little kid, it's like, you're going to sit here and complain about it or you're going to do something about it. That phrase right there has fortunately worked more to my advantage and less of a disadvantage. But there's been a couple of times where it was like, I got to do something and it was a little bit too much. But that's besides the point. But, you know, when we are looking at these positions of leadership, I think that we often look at the characteristics and personalities of the people running and we hope that they embody the values that we hold the moral characters that we would like to see in our leadership <clears throat> and so hearing this phrase and having conversations with my dad it was um, a pretty bold decision that i had made and saying you know i've been doing a lot of work not only on myself, but on a on a scale in which I am hoping is preserving our culture and our people. And I feel that I've been representing our people and my family, most importantly, on world scale levels, whether that be within MMA and jujitsu or with this advocacy work that I've been doing with MMIW. And I had felt it a disservice to my own people that if I didn't essentially bring that back home. Mind you, I haven't left home at all. I've been doing a lot of the work for my own home here on the reservation, but it just has been a little disheartening that the different departments don't want to take advantage of the resources that they do have readily available to them. I would love to provide more services to our local community here. Uh, for some reason, there hasn't really been a want for that partnership, and it's been really hard to cultivate that, given the history that I've had with some of these departments here, most specifically to the sexual harassment case that I had. It's really diminished some of those uh, relationships, unfortunately. And that's really difficult when you just want to be of service to your people. So when I made this decision, it was based on the fact that I, I feel very strongly that I've been representing the best of my ability and on a, a really good um primarily national scale and wanted to bring a lot of this back home, but also provide um, a different kind of voice. I, I know that we are all one as a people, but I think it we all have our own gifts and attributes as a people. Um, not everyone was hunters back in the day. Not everyone was warriors. Not everyone was chiefs. Not everyone were medicine men. We all had different responsibilities that we had to take up. And my cousin Dion had said it best. Uh, he says, you know, when creator lays something in your path, you got to be ready to pick it up. And I think that when you are willing <clears throat> and able 
to stand your ground and say some of the uncomfortable truths. You might be ready to be in a, in a position where that's going to do good for your people and do well. And I truly think that's what had really motivated me is I really just want to be of service to my people. And I want to be able to hear on a different level of the concerns and what we want to have done in order to, you know, protect and exercise our treaty rights as a people and continue maintaining that and hopefully excel at that. That's my hopes. And um, do you have any doubts running against the opposite sex? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think this goes into what we were talking about earlier is that we don't want to categorize uh, too many um, of these issues of men and women, male or female. Um, <clears throat> I honestly think that I would be still carrying myself and navigating this this chapter of my journey in the same exact way if the other person who's running for the vice chair position were a woman as well. Uh, I truly hope that providing um, some healthy competition will only cultivate the changes that are needed for our people. Um, I think that sometimes it does take some challenges, some obstacles, and a little bit of opposition to motivate and inspire and ultimately empower regardless of if you're a male or female. I think that um, when you are met with something right there in front of you, you understand, oh, this is important work and I'm going to have to grind too. So let me show what I got. They can show what they got. And that's what we're going to do. And, you know, regardless of the results on Tuesday, um, I truly believe that Creator will work out what's going to be best for our people. And I think that the community, the tribal members, all of general counsel is all ready for change and ready for progress and growth and that everyone will make the sound decision uh, with a good heart and an open mind that they're going to choose the leadership that is going to lead this next generation into the most prosperous that it could be. And being the most prosperous prosperous on a health and wellness level, on an economic level, on a judicial level, in all the different areas. And I, I truly believe that regardless of the other person running for the vice chair position being uh, a man, it, it has no sway on uh, how I operate. I think it's really fortunate that I have such a close relationship with my dad. Uh, I also grew up with brothers and many uh, male cousins. So um I'm a little tough. I'm a little tough, but also I'm in a, a very male dominant sport. It has not been rare for me to step onto a mat and be the only female there. So I do believe that when faced with opposition of male form, I handle it fairly well. Uh, and a majority of the time, almost welcome it because then I'm just like, I can, I can hang, I can, I can be here with you and I can um, work just as hard. I can put my head down and grind just as much. And man, but I do love a good old empowerment. I do believe as a matriarchal people, uh, that's where we start to see a lot of this big pivotal movements um, in whatever space that be. When women lead, there's, that's, there's a lot to be said for that. So 
That's an awesome question. And then your last one is, how will you develop relationships with stakeholders, partnering agencies to advocate for community and policies and law? This is what I've been doing a lot of this work the past several years is working with other agencies. It has been because I maintain this level of interpersonal connections with individuals. And I think that's something that's a little rare. I, I truly feel that is a, a gift of mine. Um, I do believe that Desiree Coyote could speak to it as well Is that when we've gone into these spaces with uh, government agencies, um, I've been to the to the state capitol. I've met Tana Sanchez and Kate Brown when she was in office during that time, but I've also met with other organizations and their leads. I've met with department heads of Fox Valley Academy. They actually run, run the National Criminal Justice Training Center. I've met with other boards. And I, I do believe that it's this level of interpersonal connections that I'm able to cultivate that make people feel comfortable and like they want to connect and that they want to build a relationship that ultimately is prosperous for everyone at the end that is beneficial to everyone at the end, regardless of me maybe saying something that might make them uncomfortable or might make them, you know, kind of stand there and be like, that was really hard to hear, but the way you deliver it was kind of in a way where we can work through this. We could do something. Um, I truly do my best to still maintain this level of confidence and strength in the face of adversity while still in this unique way, being able to empower the other person that I've talked to. And I think that's ultimately what's going to create and cultivate, cultivate this change, not only on this tribal uh, government level, but also on the state level and federal level is being able to provide that presence. Uh, it was something that I mentioned at the forum the other day, which was I, I am essentially walking uh, in two, two worlds at the same time. And it's something that I've, I've learned to navigate fairly well. We're walking essentially in the white man's world. We have to figure out how to show up with them and talk to them while still maintaining this very advantageous position as an indigenous person. I hope that makes sense. Excuse me. We have to learn to work, walk and move in the white world while still maintaining our integrity as indigenous people. Being born Indian is truly a gift. It's something that we have learned time and time again that it's wanted by people. We run into this all the time is when we meet non-native people, they're immediately intrigued. They are immediately excited by meeting a native person. And that's something that we have to our advantage. On the same coin, when we flip it, we are also seen as a threat. So being able to show up as a threat, but also show them why in such a gentle way that also empowers them to understand, I want to work with this person because although what she's bringing scares me, it might be dangerous, it might be a little uneasy for some to hear, we gotta talk about it, we gotta work on this, we gotta fix this. So I think that it's gonna be those, those connections that I've been able to build on a professional level in that sort of way has been made it easy to cultivate those relationships that we're talking about and maybe on, you know, with other agencies that you're talking about, or maybe something you're thinking about right now. I think that's something that's uh, truly beautiful as indigenous people is that when we're able to harness that and, you know, that's what we strive off of is connections with other people, connections to the land, connections to everything around us. It just makes it so much more beautiful and easy to work with other people off the reservation or from outside entities. Thank you for those questions, Maurice. Those were really awesome. Norma is asking about the seven circles of wellness. Yes, this is something um, 
Thosh Collins and Chelsea Collins, if you look them up, they had this book released. It's been over a year ago. It has been amazing. It has swept across Indian country in such an amazing way. I actually had the opportunity to work with them this last summer at the Wellness Warrior Camp in Grand Ronde, and they are amazing people. Um, definitely look into that book. Do you have established government to government relationships, city, county, state, and federal? Yes. So I think this is kind of the same thing that Maurice was asking is being able to, you know, cultivate and maintain those uh, relationships with outside entities. I, I truly do believe that I've been able to make a, a lot of relationships and connections in those areas. Uh, I do believe that per, like locally on a city level, I do have a, a few people that I'm in contact with on a consistent basis to be able to continue this work with MMIW. Um, and trying to find some solutions closely. It is, you know, it is really hard because we're, we got town and then we have the reservation. So there's still, you know, some of those interpersonal workings that make it a little hard and puts a, puts a hindrance on it every once in a while. But I do feel like I've done my best to maintain those on a government level. I know that Kate Brown is no longer in office, but I did meet her when the bill signing happened for the MMIW task force. That was had. Uh, I've also met Tana Sanchez. That was really cool. Um, but I have been in spaces with other people on different levels. I actually did attend a conference and Dallas Goldtooth was there. I know he's not a government official, but uh, that kind of speaks to the different people that were there to talk about residential schools and the legislation that we're trying to get put in place to, um, you know, further support the research, the development and the support that could be provided to residential school survivors and start bringing about more research and statistics for them. So that was kind of an arena that I've been kind of like slowly getting into a little bit more because the MMIW movement and um, working with our elders, those kind of go hand in hand. So I've been, you know, kind of easing my way into that work, but uh, I haven't had a lot of the opportunity on a bigger scale only because I haven't been on official boards or anything like that. But I do feel it speaks volumes when you're able to build these connections on a personal level and still be able to say, hey, like I'm, I'm from this tribe, I'm from this community, this is what we're facing. These are the issues that we're having. What can we do? And when they want to talk to you more and more about it, and um, I've been able to work with the Department of Justice. We had a panel we were able to create develop revise and edit over and over um it was a very long tedious process that took about six months of developing this handbook it was an mmiw handbook that was essentially for family members to learn how to navigate the system when they're trying to report a loved one missing and when it gets to a certain level of reaching mmiw um <clears throat> that was really uncomfortable i think for some of the government officials that were on that panel because what i had spoke to them is that i don't think that we need this handbook for the family members we very well understand how to navigate um the system and we very well know how to advocate for our loved one by organizing search parties and doing all that work what i think is needed is a handbook for law enforcement on how to deal with indigenous communities is that something that we could start working on? And very quickly got picked up. A lot of other people wanted to have the same thing because that's where we know the lack of communication and that huge barrier is happening is within law enforcement. So that has continued on. Um, <clears throat> I will say, speaking to that point about MMIW, uh, we had this opportunity, Desiree Coyote and myself, on Tuesday at seven o'clock at 
Blue Mountain Community College, we are going to be speaking for the East Oregon, East Oregon Forum, and we're talking specifically about this MMIW crisis. And uh, of course, I know um, Desiree will bring all of her amazing work that she does. She's been in this line of work for 21 years. Um, she'll bring all of her amazing information, but you know, I'll come up in with the with a little bit of a nudge for these people. And I do believe that there's gonna be quite a few notable people within the audience that are going to hear this information and hopefully we can cultivate more connections to continue this work along but i do believe that we'll be live streaming that and that's on tuesday november 14th um at 7 p.m at blue mountain community college again i have a lot of that stuff posted on my facebook but if you need any of that information just shoot me a message and i'll give you more details on that but i am really excited for that it's just it's more and more uh opportunities like that that we have to take on um, being willing to stand in front of these people and say all these things and being able to advocate for our loved ones that were taken all too soon, but then also providing the the strength and resiliency our people carry and why people should be taking this more seriously and understanding that we're not going to stop, but it'd be nice if you could help us out sort of thing. So <clears throat> give me just a minute here. I do have another message. So let me read this. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a really good question. And I love this because I was actually talking to um, someone about this at the Longhouse yesterday. So <clears throat> the message says, my question is, how do other federally known tribes get help? I have asked my own tribe. They told me because I don't live on my reservation, they can't help me. And I have a family member that is CTYR, but can't get any help because they live too far from home. This is very interesting <clears throat> because again, talk about this at the longhouse is we have a lot of community members who were born and raised on the Umatilla reservation, but are enrolled with another federally recognized tribe. And I'm thinking of a very specific elder. I don't believe it's been a year, so I won't say their name, but what was interesting about her is that she, I don't believe she was born here, but she was Yakima and she, but she was living here. She provided so much to the community. She worked for the tribe. She worked in a lot of different departments and entities, but um, when she was having issues with her home, and this is when my dad became involved because she reached out to my dad for some help. Uh, she was asking for assistance to be able to get some of the uh, things taken care of in her house. And because she wasn't a CTYR tribal member, she couldn't get assistance. And so she was reaching out to, you know, um, other family, friends for assistance. Excuse me. So I think this is an area in which we should be working on because we have a lot of people who are providing so much to our tribe by just living here even though they're not enrolled here. So I think this is something that we should be developing and creating is this 
sense of support for them. I don't think it's fair that we have these individuals that are working for our tribe or our entities who are also showing up within the community and being of service and also providing their knowledge and their love, most importantly, as if they were born and raised here. So I, I do think, um, I think just deep down in my heart, I think it's sad that we don't have anything like that provided. I do know that we are able to house them sometimes if there's uh, the waiting list allows it for them to be able to be moved into tribal housing. But right now, especially with how our housing is going, it makes it really difficult because that just is kind of how it is right now. <clears throat> but I do think that there should be... Uh, some sort of funding, some sort of grant that could be proposed or written for individuals who are tribal members from other fairly recognized tribes that are living here because you guys provide so much to us. Um, this person uh, specifically that's messaging me, I can think of a bunch of different ways that they've provided support to just not myself, but people around me. Uh, we were actually neighbors for a little bit of time and when I would see them out and about, they were always doing something for someone else. So I don't think it's asking a whole lot of our our own government. And you know, luckily, we're a sovereign nation, so we get to make these choices for ourselves. So I do think that there should be something implemented um, in being able to provide that for other people. And especially our tribal members who are living maybe on another reservation. So say if a Umatilla is living on the Akaba Res, is there services provided for that that's something i definitely would be taking in consideration and really trying to find a, what we could do in that area so that is an excellent question and something i've heard quite a bit on <clears throat> some other oregon tribes have general assistance in urban areas can the c2ir enable this also again i i really don't think that these boundaries that you know are this big colonial construct that we're forced upon our people should be something that we're being limited to. Ultimately, we're limiting ourselves as a people when we don't provide support to everyone who is enrolled under our constitution. Like, I, I really think we're doing a disservice being able to provide support like that. Because, I mean, if we're talking like when our treaty was established, our reservation used to be so huge. So, I mean if I were living in Tri-Cities, like I should still be able to have support, right? Like, cause that, that was our original seated boundaries for the reservation. So why isn't it still like that? But I mean, we are talking about people that are in Portland, maybe different areas, but I just have never been this huge fan of individual, like invisible lines, so to speak. Um, because we really limit ourselves as a people. We're limiting our culture. We're limiting our, our overall, uh, sovereignty that we're able to make these choices for ourselves to provide so those are definitely really good topics and <clears throat> let me make a quick note really quick quick note really quick that made sense yeah because that is definitely something that needs to be addressed i'm sure it has been at some point it just the the follow-through probably needs a little bit more but that's something i can see should be talked about amongst tribal leadership. <clears throat> All right. Do a quick time check. 520. 
We've been going at this for about an hour, 20 minutes. I definitely want to be respectful of everyone's time. I really do appreciate everyone that has joined live and provided questions. And I am so grateful to those who provided questions beforehand, gave me a little bit to work with. Definitely some big, deep, and just very interesting topics to, to touch on. <clears throat> So we'll just get ready to close this out. Again, November 14th, Tuesday is a very big day. You get to practice your treaty rights. You get to practice uh, what it is that makes us an individual people as con the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Go in there, make sure you place your vote. And you know, I truly, truly just want everyone to make their vote based on good, sound decisions. And um, I truly do believe that creator will guide everyone in that choice and that, that decision that they're going to be making for themselves. And I just feel it within our community and our people that we're really wanting change. We want this progress. We want this growth. And I will do my best to provide a fresh, uh, re-energized perspective from the different areas of my life, all the work that I've been doing, um, on a professional level, but also a personal level, because tribal leadership is something that doesn't separate us from the people. It's something that doesn't take me from one point and puts me up to a place of being untouchable. It really doesn't. If anything, it means that I need to be even more connected to all of you, the people that make this possible. I think that's something that often gets forgotten is we want our tribal leadership to understand who we are. We want our tribal leadership to sympathize and feel where we're at and what we're wanting and what we need. And I truly do feel like I've embodied that for a very long time, I've been really trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle to preserve not only my culture, but preserve my family as well and provide a direct example to the next generation, which for me personally is my boys. I truly feel like they are capable of so much from a leadership perspective, but they're also capable of representing our people in a really good way. And I just have been trying my best to live intentionally and purposefully for them so that they can continue this on for the next seven generations. I also believe that I've been preserving our culture and way of our elders and maintaining these relationships with them, hearing them where they're at and understanding where maybe their anger and frustration is coming from, but also understanding that a lot of the work that they have done has not gone, gone unseen and that I myself appreciate everything that they have done for our people and clear back seven generations before us, all of our ancestors and the decisions that they made to ensure our survival, to ensure our sovereignty for our people. So cultural preservation is really huge for me. I do believe that uh, asking for accountability is something that I strive for every single day as well. If, uh, if it's asked of me, I am ready to acknowledge, answer, and be accountable and responsible for anything that I've done, said, or do, or things like that. But I 
do believe that living a life like that calls for me to be able to ask of accountability accountability for other people, whether that be on a government level, a judicial level, with law enforcement, with the different departments that we have under our tribe. Um, I just want accountability. I want to know why things have happened the way that they happen. I want to know uh, why things are the way that they are. And I want to know how we're going to fix them to uh, take care of our people and for the betterment of our, our tribe. And I truly am overwhelmed again, just with blessings and being able to be given the opportunity to represent our people on this level. And I can't say it enough that regardless of what happens on Tuesday, the work that I've been doing, the work that I continue to do will keep going on regardless because I still wake up every single day and then I still wake up every single day here with you guys. I still wake up every single day with an Indian name that I have to take care of and that I have a responsibility and a duty to. Um, I want to be able to represent you. I want to hear from you. I want to understand why these issues are going on and what we can do to fix them. Um, I am really looking forward to essentially the team that could be created to represent our people. Again, I know that I'm not on my own. I just know that what I feel personally, the goals and objectives that I have for myself, my family, my tribe, and my people is really important, but it does have to also be in synchronicity with the other people on the board. And I truly feel that everyone sees the options that are available with the other candidates and can kind of see how many of us are in alignment with one another and what we've been working on for so long and for so many years. And I just, I'm just really grateful for the, the opportunity to be able to do that. And I really do hope that you consider voting for me. If you have any other questions of me, please do not hesitate. You can reach out to me. Um, my phone number is 541-969-0991. Feel free to text me, call me. Um, again, if you have me on social media, you can reach out to me through there. Uh, there's always ways to get a hold of me. And I'm out here in the community. You see me almost on every like a day-to-day -day basis. So don't hesitate to ask any questions because I will do my best to uh, answer them. If I don't have the answers, I will do the research and come back with something. Um, I like to work hard. I'm dedicated and loyal and true to Token. I will fight for you. I will be a voice for you and just maintain this integrity that I've been carrying with my, within myself for so long. But this has been an amazing journey, man. Two more days. A lot of us, I know we're feeling it, but you all, I hope you take care of yourselves. Make sure to drink your water. Make sure you get some rest. Make sure you hug someone. Make sure you tell someone you love them. And, you know, as much as uh, this is a big, big day for me, this is a big day for you guys as well. So make sure you're taking care of yourself and just know that you are seen, that you are valued, that you are important and you are more than enough. And I absolutely am truly grateful for this opportunity to represent you my family and my relatives and man, it really does mean a lot. So I hope you all have a good evening. Thank you so much. The I Am Podcast was created and produced by me, Cola Shippentower. You have to be your biggest fan. And when things are really tough and they're really rough and nothing's working, but there's something inside of you that says, I just have to follow that because you don't know who you're going to be.